miss a great time, and we'll, we'll come back to that a little later. So tonight, I want to begin with, with uh, a brief story from Luke chapter 10. And it says there that on one occasion, uh, a man who was an expert in the law asked Jesus a question. And the question he asked is, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, on one level, that, that's, a, that's a good question, right? That's a very valid question. I think if, if there is such a thing as eternal life, how, how I would gain that would, would be some, some helpful information. Now, we know from the context of the story that the motivation of the man's heart wasn't exactly right, that he wasn't really so much interested in knowing how to gain eternal life as he was in testing Jesus. So he, wasn't, he asked a good question, but maybe with not such good motivation. But nonetheless, I think, uh, a good question. So Jesus uh, responds with a question of his own. And he says back to the man, and really here he acknowledges the guy as an expert in the law. He, he re- recognizes who he is and says, well, what, what's written in the law? What is it, how do you read it? What does it say to you? And the man knows the answer to that, of course, being an expert in the law. And he responds back to Jesus and says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus answered, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. First thing I would like to encourage you in is if you have an opportunity to have such an exchange with Jesus. And you get into a question and answer time with him. And Jesus says, you have answered correctly. Step away. Okay, just call it good. Call it good. Jesus says, you've answered correctly. Now, you know, you could just say, all right, I got it. The, uh, the answer that the expert in the law gave was the correct answer. He, he asked a legal question of Jesus. He had a response, and he ultimately gave the correct legal answer. And I think that reminds us, and at least it, it says to me, that we can know all the right things. We can even do all the right things. But knowing the right things and even doing the right things without the right motivation might at the end of the, end of the day not really be the right answer. There's something missing in that equation. The something missing is the attitude of the heart. The something missing is that thing inside of us that motivates us to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And I w- I would, there's, a, there's a number of terms we could use for that, but I would call it compassion. That's something there. The something that was missing in the heart of the expert of the law was compassion. So we're going to continue tonight. We've been looking at uh, 
vineyard values over the past few weeks? What are the things that we uphold as, as sort of being central to who we are as a people, as a church? And uh, we've talked about a couple of things. Tonight I want to talk about compassionate ministry. This is the third of the, the five values. Um, each one that we have discussed has its own sort of piece in the puzzle. And it really is a puzzle, and none without the others are complete. But if you remember, a few weeks ago I said that kingdom theology and practice is really sort of foundational to all the other ones. And to begin really understanding how we function as a church and, and, and who we are as a people really is to understand the kingdom of God and to know how we enter the kingdom of God and what it means to, to bring the kingdom with us as we kind of go about our business. Second value we looked at was culturally relevant ministry. And, and I think that's important, and we understand that because if we seek to do ministry at all, to be a benefit to anyone, but we're so detached and so far removed from their world and their life and their culture that there's no connection, I mean, then what's the point, right? So tonight, talking about compassionate ministry, I really want us to think about what is, to me, sort of the heart of the matter. And when I say the heart of the matter, I don't mean the center, but the heart, the heart, the, 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 the feeling of the matter, the, the reality, that sort of thing that just grips you inside. And, 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 and I'll be honest, this is, this is the thing that over the last 30 or so years, 35 years, has, has really been um, one of the dearest things to me in being in a vineyard church, you know, um, Years ago, I don't remember when it first happened, but someone had a prophetic word and they said they saw kind of a banner over the vineyard that said worship and compassion. And, and it's really compassion that I think uh, grips my heart the most when I think about what it means to be in the vineyard movement and to be a vineyard church. I mean, even last night thinking about it, you know, we talked about the, the dinner and, and it was fun. It was really fun. It was, it was cool to come in and see the kids dressed up and they're serving us. It really was. It was a great time. But what made it worthwhile is when Paul stood up and said, hey, all the money that we make tonight is going to go to buy food to feed hungry people when we go to Mexico. That's what made it worthwhile. Otherwise, it would have been a kind of a fun thing to do, which is fine, I guess. But that makes it all worthwhile. The understanding that there's a heart of compassion, there's something in the middle of that, there's something beating away inside of it that says there's more than just the right answer. There really is something deep inside of us that motivates us to be different than the world that we live in. I want to take a second and and pray, and then we'll talk about compassionate ministry. So Jesus... um, once again, enlighten the eyes of our hearts tonight that we might come to a deeper understanding of what it means to know your compassion, to, to see as you see, to feel as you feel, and to react as you react in those situations when there's need around us. Give us a greater understanding of all that it means to be filled with compassion tonight. So, you know, to continue our story, the, uh, the expert in the law, he, he got the right answer. He got it right. And, and he could have, at that moment, walked away clean. Now, I, you know, I mean, I guess if his motivation was to test Jesus, I don't know if Jesus passed or not in his book, but he got the answer right. He could have left, 
But it says in the next verse, you know, he, and I think this was a fatal mistake. He, he asked a, a follow-up question, and, and Jesus says, you know, he said, love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. And so he says to Jesus, well, then, who's my neighbor? Who's my neighbor? And again, he's coming at this from a legal perspective. And so he wants a, a legal answer. He wants a clear definition. He wants, he wants to know uh, how this all fits in his box. He, he wants boundaries. He, he wants to know, who am I responsible to love and who am I not responsible to love? Who's in and who's out? That's really what he wants to know. Now, in, in his day, in, in, in any day, I suppose there's some complexity to that answer. In his day, though, I think it would have been much easier to come to a conclusion as who is my neighbor than it would be in our day, right? You, can you see that? I mean, uh, travel was limited in those days. Uh, the, the sort of, uh, you, you know, transient nature of people in general wasn't the same. I mean, we, we travel, we go all over the place, people move, people relocate and all, all that sort of thing. So determining who my neighbor is may have had some complexity to it when he asked this question. But today, I think it has much greater complexity to it. Who really is my neighbor? Is it the person next door? Is that my neighbor? Or is it my, my street, the people that live on my block? Or maybe it's the next block over. Or maybe it's my neighborhood, those who, whatever you would consider your neighborhood. Maybe those are my neighbors. Or maybe it's my whole city. It's maybe it's, it's Tigard. Or is it Tigard? Or is it really kind of the Portland metro area? What... Who is my neighbor? What about the people I work with? Because we relate with one another. I spend 40 hours or 50 hours a week with them, and we talk and we eat meals, but some of them live really far away from me. So I don't know. Are those my neighbors, or is somebody else my neighbor? It's, it's pretty unclear to me as to who my neighbor really is. So who is my neighbor? The world that we live in has gotten so much smaller, hasn't it? Does that ever strike you? In our little um, pastor's prayer meeting Thursday morning in that room right back there, my good friend Steve shared with us about his trip to Kenya last week and showed us some photographs of the people that he ministered to in Africa around the world a few days ago. It's amazing to me the way that the size of the world has gotten so much smaller. I can push a button on my phone and in a minute, a second, I I know that there are blizzards going across most of the United States. I know that the entire nation of Egypt is in political upheaval. I know that a a woman and her daughter were killed by a drunk driver on Highway 6 down by the coast. I know that Lindsay Lohan is going to jail. Yeah. Who's my neighbor? Who am I responsible for? Who do I need to love? and, And who am I excluded from having to really love or worry about at all? Don't you wish you had the uh, ability to answer things the way that Jesus answers them sometimes? Wouldn't you just love that? I mean, I I go, gosh, why couldn't I think of that? You know, he doesn't answer this question directly. 
nor does he pull out his, you know, uh, parallel translation Old Testament and his theology books and do a Bible study. Instead of either of those things, what he does is he tells a little story. And it's a story that uh, I think probably all of us, or at least most of us, have heard before. Some of us have heard many times, but I believe it bears telling again. It's one of those stories that I believe was intended to be heard over and over and over and passed down from generation to generation to generation. I'd hope to have it up so you could read it with me, but you're just going to have to listen and follow along unless you want to open. I think it's Luke 10. But when the man asked, who is my neighbor? This was Jesus' response. He said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road. And when he saw the man, he passed by the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him, and he bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. He put the man on his own donkey. He brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return... I will reimburse you for any extra expense that you may have. So uh, a little background, first of all. Um, There are two religious people in the story, a priest and a Levite. Both should have known better, should have responded differently than they did. Interestingly enough, the, the hero of our story is a Samaritan. That's bad. That's bad, 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 bad. That is the last thing that the expert in the law wanted to hear. It was probably the last thing that anybody that happened to be listening in on Jesus' little story wanted to hear. Samaritan in our day has come to mean only one thing. It's a good person that helps somebody. Samaritan in that day wasn't that at all. A a Samaritan was a person, a foreigner of another race, another culture, another country that was hated. They were an enemy. They weren't liked by anyone at all. The expert of the law would have at that moment probably thought in his own mind and heart, that guy shouldn't be able to inherit eternal life at all. And yet Jesus makes him the hero of the story. Well, none of that really means anything to us, does it? If we were to tell this story today, who would the Samaritan be? Because it really means nothing to us to say a Samaritan. Again, it's a good guy. That's what it is. But who would it be today? I think it would be, this is me, maybe you have something else. I think it would be someone of Islamic faith, Middle Eastern descent, recently immigrated to the United States, doesn't speak much English. That's who I think it would be. That person would be the hero of the story. So, at the heart of Jesus' response is a heart of compassion and not the law. 
I want to look at the story and identify three components of compassion. And um, no one or two really is compassion on its own. It really is a combination of all three. And without all three, I think we don't have true compassion. But the, the first is eyes to see. Now, both the priest and the Levite saw the man. It would be one thing if they just were busy or whatever, I don't know, you know, and, and walked by and didn't see the guy, right? That might be an out for them. But in the story, Jesus makes it very clear that they not only saw him, but they actually crossed the street so that they didn't have to walk near him. They saw him. But the question is, when they saw the man in need that had been beaten up and was laying half dead on the side of the road, naked, what did they see? Maybe they saw an interruption. I've got a busy day. I've got a lot of appointments. I'm late for a big meeting. If I stop and help this guy, it could throw me off. I could mess up my whole day. It, it, could, it, could, it could have been an interruption in their schedule. Maybe they saw a risk. Man, I'm not sure this isn't a trap. If, if I stop, the robbers could be hiding, and there'll be two guys beat up, bloody, laying half dead and naked in the road, and what good will that be? I'm a little fearful. I don't think I'll stop. Maybe it was a risk to them. I, I wonder if maybe they saw someone who in their estimation, wasn't as valuable as someone else, maybe wasn't worthy of the help. Now, we don't know that because we don't know who the person on the side of the road is. I love that about the story. I think it's important that it's unimportant. It's important that it doesn't matter who the man on the side of the road is. Jesus never tells us about who he is. His nationality, where he's from, what kind of, is he rich or poor? We don't know anything about him, just a man on the side of the road. And I think it's important that we don't know who that is. I think part of the heart of compassion is it doesn't matter who it is. The priest and the Levite both saw the man, but didn't see the man. Matthew 9, it says, Jesus saw the crowds and he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And compassion begins with eyes to see. That's where it starts. Do you know God sees everything? And do you know that for God it's all personal? It's all personal. There's no one on the side of the road that God doesn't care about. Because they're all his kids. What if you saw one of your children on the side of the road, beaten up and bloody and half naked? How would you respond? Well, God sees everybody that way. His heart breaks at each person there, no matter who they are. So compassion begins with eyes to see. And we can pray. And I, can, and I would challenge you to pray. God, give me eyes to see. Let me see as you see. while I pray before uh, service tonight, that our hearts would break with the things that break the heart of God. Give us eyes to see those things in this life as you see them, the, the needs in people's lives as you see them. 
Second part of compassion is hearts to feel. Hearts to feel. It says the Samaritan took pity on him, and I, I hate that translation because pity has come to mean kind of one thing in our language where it's sort of like almost condescending, like I sort of, oh, I pity that poor fool, right? Um, the, uh, the word there, the Greek word, is, is unpronounceable in English. It's like or something like that. And uh, what, it, what it means is from the bowels. And in, in, the, in the Jewish tradition, what it really meant was that something that comes from way deep down inside of you. It's something that rises up inside of you that really is, is an emotional response that's beyond your control. And almost every other time it's used in the New Testament, it's translated as compassion, not pity. So I wish they would have said here that he had compassion on him rather than pity, but they didn't, so we'll live with it. But it, it, it really is that something that comes from deep inside of you. You have a question? You have a question? What, are, what translation are you reading? Very good. See, that's a good translation. Thank you for sharing. <laughs> it's that thing that comes from inside of you that you just don't know where it comes from. Anybody ever feel that? Anybody ever experience that? A lot of you are shaking your heads. It's an interesting dynamic when it happens, and it really is inspired by the Spirit of God. It's a rare thing. I remember years and years ago when our kids were real little, um, we had a, a young gal living with us for a while, kind of just helping out with the kids and stuff. And uh, I don't remember where I was. I was out one night, and I came home, and, and uh, this girl's name was Nanette, and Donna and Nanette were watching the news. So it must have been late when I got home because it was 11 o'clock news, you know. And... Uh, I, I remember this very vividly, coming in and sitting down. And there was a story on the news, and it, I, I don't remember the details, except that it was something about a lady who had locked her little kid in the trunk of the car during the day and left her in there all day. She had, like, water and some cookies and some toys. And, and I remember hearing that story and just that thing going off inside of me, and I have no idea where it came from. And I just sat there, and I cried and cried and cried and cried and cried, and I couldn't stop for the longest time. And I had no idea who this person was. I think they were in another state. It didn't even, nobody I'd ever seen before, but there was just something inside of me that just went off. And I know it was the heart of God. More recently, just a few years ago, I was in Nicaragua, and it was the first time I'd been there several times but had never gone into La Chureca, the dump there. And I had heard about it and wanted to go, or so I thought, um, but we had not had occasion to. So this was the first time that I had got to go to the dump, and I was actually nervous. I was kind of nervous about going. I'd heard lots of stories about what it was like there, dangerous, there's gangs, whatever, I don't know, you know, all this stuff, you hear these things. And, and, and then, you know, if, if we're going to be really honest, I'll just say I don't do well with dirt. I don't, I don't like dirt. I don't like to be sticky. I don't like mud. I don't like dirt. I don't like it. I just don't like dirt. It's just, I'm, I, don't, I don't like dirt. So I, I, wasn't, I wasn't excited about that part of it. So we, we pull in, and, and there is. There's a whole, and I've shown you guys pictures before. There's a whole village, you know, a whole city, really, in the dump. And we park and we get out, and we were literally there Less than one minute, seconds, and some little kids kind of came running out. And it's like a scene from a movie. They just kind of come out of the woods and come out of the weeds and come out of everywhere. And this little boy, five, six years old, literally runs to me and jumps up into my arms. 
And it was one of those deals where I, there's no time to think. I just caught him in midair because otherwise he would have fallen. I didn't, he, it wasn't like a game, you know, okay, jump now. He just ran and jumped. And so now I'm holding this guy, and he's, he's dirty. He's very, he lives in a dump. He's dirty. And I have no option. And it was just totally God. And, and I carried that kid around for an hour. And, and, and everything in me was just going ballistic. I have no idea this kid's name. I don't even speak the same language as him. I, it, it's just something inside of me, you know. And, and it's that feeling inside that comes from the heart of God. You know, it's, it, I'll be honest, it's hard to attain that in our culture today. It, it's hard to identify with that kind of need, isn't it? Do you ever feel like that? <clears throat> Do you ever feel like you see so many things and you hear so many things and there's so much tragedy in the world that you develop what I call compassion fatigue? It just doesn't affect you anymore? Do you ever get that? I do. I, I, sometimes I listen to the news and you, and you hear about, you know, an earthquake or, or, or whatever, different things in Haiti or Pakistan or these places, and they talk about the numbers of people that are homeless, the numbers of people that have died. And it's, it's beyond comprehension. I can't even think or feel anything. You know, you see one face, you see one little face, you hear about one life, it, it becomes real, but when you hear about hundreds and thousands of them, you just sort of grow weary of it. How do you overcome that? How do you get back to that place where God is moving upon your heart again and you, and you allow yourself to feel? I think there are some things we can do. First thing I would say is, I think compassion is contagious. And, and, and I... I always find myself becoming more compassionate when I'm around people that are compassionate. Do you? You know, you know there's those people in life, those rare individuals, and, and they just love, and they do. They love the way that God loves, and, and, and they're so amazing. And when I get around those people, it begins to stir me. And, and I would just encourage you to, to do that. The other thing I think we can do is, and, and this is challenging, but put ourselves intentionally into situations where, where we're going to be exposed to the mess. My friend Steve Shogren says, he has a little saying, and it, you know, it's, where is the pain? And sometimes that's his prayer. Where is the pain? And he's a, he's a crazy guy who really will go places where he knows there's hurting people just so he can be there in the midst of the pain with the heart of God. You know, he, he said he found himself a few years ago in a place where he was feeling distant from God, you know, those dry times that we go through. Everybody has that, right? You just kind of don't... Eh. So what do we do when we do those? You know, do we, we go on a retreat, right? Or we go to a conference. We go to some place where we're going to get pumped up with the Spirit of God. He went to Mexico City. He just said, I went to Mexico City. I got on a plane. I flew to Mexico City, and I walked around the city. And he goes, there's these kids there that uh, they spray paint and tan and bags and sniff it. And he goes, they're 9, 10 years old. 
And they're, and, and they're already just so stoned out of their minds all the time. They don't even know what's going on. They just wander around the city. And he goes, that, that's how I got in touch with God again, by, by, do, by doing that. So, so we cultivate compassion in our lives, I think, um, by allowing ourselves to be exposed to the mess. And I'll be honest, I think for too long the church sort of built up a wall. And we wanted to keep the mess out and the neat, clean, tidy, good people in. And I say, no, we've got to go where the mess is. I think that's what God's called us to. I'll recommend another book to you, and I think I've talked to, to you about it before. I, I can't remember because I've talked to so many people about it. But there's a great book called Tattoos on the Heart, and I know a few of you have read it. I would recommend everyone read it. It's by a guy named Gregory Boyle. Boyle is a uh, slightly past middle-aged, overweight, Irish Catholic Jesuit priest. And he works with Hispanic gang members in Los Angeles. So you talk about the odd couple, right? Just w- If you picture a bald, overweight, older Irish Catholic Jesuit priest, that's him. And he works with gang members, and they call him G. And, and he works with them in Los Angeles and has for 30 years. And he talks about this very thing. One quote from the book that I want to share with you. He says, here is what we seek. A compassion that can stand in awe at what the poor have to carry rather than stand in judgment of how they carry it. And his concepts of compassion will challenge everything about your life. So we pray for eyes to see, and we allow our hearts to begin to feel. And then finally, the the, the last aspect of compassion is that we develop hands and feet to act. Again, in Matthew 9, Jesus saw the crowds. He had compassion on them. And then he responded. He fed those that were hungry. He prayed for those that were sick. He delivered those that were oppressed. He loved those who were marginalized. And he did the things that he calls us to do. The very things he calls us to do. I would also uh, remind you again of the... um, I shared when we began this series, uh, the Vineyard USA website... If you go to just Vineyard USA, there's a page that has the five values, and there's a brief description of each one. And then there are several articles written by different Vineyard leaders across the country on each article, and they're they're very good. And the ones on compassion are exceptional. Um, But in in one by Bert Wagner, who's our our, um, national director, Bert points out something that I I thought was profound that I had actually never heard before and never uh, considered myself. And that is that in, in uh, Luke 4, we all know where Jesus stands up in the temple and he unrolls the scroll, right? And he reads from Isaiah. And he reads the, the words, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. What Bert points out in his article is that the purpose for the anointing upon Jesus was to care for those in need. The sole purpose for the anointing, the Spirit of the Lord is on me 
because he has anointed me to do these things. The purpose for the anointing of God is to care for those in need. Now, we talk a lot about anointing, right? This person's anointed, that person's anointed. And, and almost always when we talk about that, it has to do with something other than caring for those in need. It has to do with any number of things. Sometimes just kind of feeling warm and fuzzy, right? Um, so, sometimes being really good at what they do. So, sometimes, uh, you know, j- just a, a powerful sense of God's presence. All those things are valid. They all matter. They all count. But at the end of the day, the purpose of the anointing of God is to care for those in need. If it doesn't lead to that, I would challenge as to whether or not it's a true anointing of God. And I know that's a strong statement, but I would. It's got to lead to that. that that's what it's got to be about. Bert says this, Compassion is a work of the Holy Spirit. It is clear evidence of a Spirit-filled life. So, if a person is spirit-filled, one of the evidences of that should be compassion. So it should be uh, that willingness to step out into those places where there's need and care for those that are in need. So the Samaritan or the recently immigrated Middle Eastern Islamic person saw the man He felt something for him. He had compassion on him, it tells us. Then he went to him. He bandaged his wounds. He gave him medicine. He put him on his donkey and took him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he paid for the guy's stay and he told the innkeeper, take good care of him while I'm gone. If there's any more expense, I'll pay you when I come back. So compassion isn't compassion until it involves a response. It means nothing to watch a video and shed a tear unless it moves you to respond in a like way. And and that really is a core value of the Vineyard Movement. That's what it means to be in a Vineyard Church, is that we we will be engaged in compassionate ministry. And it's the prayer of my heart for us that... We will never lose sight of that, that we will never, ever let go of that, and that we will always be looking, praying, seeking God, asking who, what, when, where, why, how. Not if. We'll do those things. How and when can we do them? The end of the story is is really interesting. Jesus asks the guy, after he talks about the priest and the Levite and the Samaritan, and he says, So, who was his neighbor? And the, uh, I love it, the expert of the law couldn't bring himself to say the Samaritan because they hated Samaritans so much he couldn't even say it. But he he was able to kind of get out, well, the one who helped him. He was his neighbor. And I don't think it was the answer he was looking for that day, but he finally understood. And Jesus' final words, I think, are his words to us tonight, which are, go and do likewise. That's what we're called to do. So why don't you guys go ahead and stand, and we'll take a minute or two pray. Jess, yeah. You know, I want to do two things tonight. Um, 
I want to pray for that heart of compassion on some of us, but I also want to just uh, feel compelled to pray for healing tonight. And to pray for healing as a, an act of compassion, as a, as a response to the heart of God. So, Lord, um, help us to take your word into our hearts tonight and to make it possible.